Hey, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. The episode you're about to listen to is from Season 1, which was originally called A World of Her Own. It was part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at ACCA. For more information about the podcast and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2, head to tysnaith.com. And now, here's the episode. Yes, and I was making the shells and I was also reconstructing them and rearranging them. I actually had a giant woman. I've got, I've still got the work actually. Yeah, she, she could just be made and get bigger and bigger and bigger because of, and that was also been a very strong part of the, this whole idea of assemblage and assembling is that you can make things, uh, in a space, expand and contract. And it's like, um, when I was doing the exquisite pirate work mm. and ideas around my global world, my global body, yeah. um, was this idea that I could in spaces be, um, as moving through the world, you know, con- constructing, if you like, my own um, journey, my own, um, yeah. my own world. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of Her Own, a series of conversations with Australian women artists I respect and admire. Today, I'm cutting up female identity with visual artist Sally Smart. Sally is a force of nature. She's made large-scale assemblage and collage works for decades and is now moving into the worlds of drama and dance, even fashion. In our chat, we talk about how Sally's body is an essential element to her work and how she realised this when she was physically installing it. I was excited to learn that there seems to be no limits to where her art might take her. With major commissions in all our national collections and commercial galleries showing her work all over the world, Sally has very little holding her back, and it seems like she never has. We learn about where this confidence came from and how she protects it. We also discuss the act of cutting as a feminist and cathartic action. Sally explains how gestures can be decisive, powerful and psychological and how we can use them to both build and dissect the female body. Because I'm so interested in in the representation of women Mm. and the feminization of mm. culture, mm. the feminization of knowledge, if you like. Um, I will engage with the the, the the female body, yes, most 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 often and most directly, mm. even to the point of often feminizing um, male models with dresses. Mm. Um, it's just. Um, it is the female body I'm most interested in, mm. experience of the female body. So in that space. With the Ballet Russe costumes, though, you know, I will, will be working with, uh, you know, choreographic, with choreographers, mm. and we will have male bodies and female bodies. Okay. But I'm most interested in what the female bodies, representation of the female body, yes. The full project of work originally was to be, because it's looking at particular aspects of the Ballet Russe and mm. cutting up. Mm. The, the ballet russe like quite digitally cutting yeah. it up so the first part of the project was to digitally cut up some of the costumes because i asked the question several years ago to james mollison actually mm. who was the who as the director of the national gallery of australia acquired this incredible 
um, collection of ballet costumes. rock costumes mm. and then restored them and so they've studied them and you know restored and I've always known about them so and every time I would see the costumes I would love them but not love them as much as I thought about loving them you know oh, like I love memory. the idea of them oh. and it was this sort of multi I realize now it's this sort of multidisciplinary sort of capacity that the ballet russe had that I was sort of most interested in especially around the artists you know the visual mm. artists like Sonia Delaunay mm. or Picasso and all their beautiful original sketches are absolutely so amazing. Yeah, that yeah. sort of engagement at that time and that time in history has always mm. interested me as well very political time in history yeah very... and that idea of um I mean I'm really interested in assemblage as well as quite a feminist um, activity or practice or almost like um, methodology, I guess. But that, um, I, in something I read in your booklet or your catalogue, um, they referred to dramatic assemblage, which I thought was a really interesting dynamic kind of term. Mm. Can you speak about dramatic assemblage in your work? Right. Um, well, I love it. I love that term too. Yeah. Um, but, I th- right, it was in the, the choreography of cutting. Yes. So um, I guess dramatic assemblage really is this idea of, you know, being a long time maker of collage Mm. and gradually, as you sort of referred to, this Mm. idea of the work becoming increasingly involved in assemblage. Mm. And I've always seen the installation work, my installation work as big assemblage tableaus. Mm. But increasingly I was interested in that relationship of my body within that space Mm. and the that almost that describing somehow that liminal space between this sort of positioning and making in that space. So there's no coincidence that I would be start to move into uh, ideas around the dramatic assemblage or the idea of assembling as part of the content of the work. So the gesture as part of the, the finished work, like that act of pinning that because pinning start it started with pinning really didn't it years ago <laughs> that, that's a very distinctive act of yes so we'll go let's go back yeah, go back let's go, go, go back. to wherever you like i'll yeah. jump around okay yeah. let's jump around because i think that um we need to start at the beginning in a way <laughs> yeah. of uh how i developed that whole mm. practice yeah. you know it's been a practice that i've been working for over 20 years in and that is and it all came from looking at ideas around identity in the 90s, very, very, um, especially female identity. And there was this sort of moment where I wanted to make, um, it was an exhibition called Dress, actually. And I wanted to, and then I um, had the paper doll. I was had been using cutting mm-hmm. and metaphors around, medical metaphors around the body. Yes, actually. I remember those you, works. You remember yeah, those yeah, works? Yeah. And, I was school. Right, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... So in looking at medical metaphors around cutting, you know, I engaged with the sort of anatomy lesson, yeah. which was actually my very first assemblage collage. And lots of hearts and lungs. And, yeah, lots yeah. of hearts and lungs and all of the things that might be related to to the body. Mm-hmm. And then also I did that um, portrait of myself with all my organs mm. on the outside of my body mm. because actually... I didn't really know where they all were, where they all fitted. So mm. I actually started making them and then pinning them on. Interesting. And then to the point where they all just were hanging all down and sort of layered right down to it. Almost you know. as a way of understanding your Absolutely. internal workings. Yeah, 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 how I did. So, but then I was sort of interested in this idea of the pin as a sort of, as a active element in constructing and holding, mm. but also fugitive, like the idea of identity being something that was you know, very, very fragile, mm. but, but sturdy as well, you know, mm. as the as the time has gone on. So this idea that we could pin something together 
and then reconstruct. So it was fluid as well. And rearranged. And rearranged. Mm, I and love that's that. then that's really that is the foundation, as a philosophical foundation to all that work. To cut up, to rearrange, mm. to pin, but to take away. Yeah. And, and also I guess that um, that link between, you know, a dressmaker's pin as well, that sort of language? That was less interesting to okay. me. Um, it was really um, it became more interesting okay. as the time as time went on. More, it was really more in the medical metaphor that mm. I started with the pin suture and sort of ideas around psychology that were probably the beginning. Mm. But as I would make the work and cut, you know, there would be this sort of dimension, and then gradually the metaphors around sewing and construction mm. started to happen, and that happened with dress, where I actually literally used the paper doll idea mm-hmm. and the idea of identity being being fluid that you could change, and so I was building these. Uh, constructions of um, figures without the body in them. Mm. So they were bodies of dresses but without a human body or a female body in them. But they, almost like a shirt which was bloused out, Mm. but you had a sense of the body being there but there was no body in there. It's like I remember I used to be obsessed with that image that was on one of the editions of the female eunuch, Jermaine Greer's book. Um, And I I don't even know the artist that made the image, but it's the dress with the breasts and nipples hanging on a coat hanger with no body in it. And that's sort of, I guess, that idea of what we project as well as a type of... Particularly within feminist theory, like what that means. That. Well, the cultural body. Mm. The body is as desi- designed and designated by culture. You know, that's what that's about, isn't it, really? Yeah. But, you know, who's Label the individual in there? Exactly. Yeah. It, it doesn't even need that recognition. It's this, this sort of mm. feminized sort of object, if you like. Yeah, like a shell. For the, the shell. For the woman to I know. come in and, um, wrapping. Yes, and I was making the shells and I was also reconstructing them and mm. rearranging them. I actually had a giant woman. I've, got, I've still got really? the work, actually. Yeah, she, she could just be made and get bigger and bigger and bigger. because of, oh. And that was also been a very strong part of the this whole idea of assemblage and assembling mm. is that you can make things uh, in a space, expand and contract. And it's like... Um, when I was doing the exquisite mm. pirate work mm. and ideas around my global world, my mm. global body, yeah. um, was this idea that I could in spaces be um, as moving through the world, you know, con- constructing, if you like, my own um, journey, my own um, yeah. my own world. Yeah, I literally. love that. I love that. And I love how global you are. Like I think that there's often in Australia we're limited by, well, we think that we're limited by this, Um, you know being at the end of the world or whatever but actually something about you and and hearing you say that makes sense is that it's really just as as broad as your imagination Mm. can go isn't it and and that's all that's stopping us is that limitation of what we think we can absolutely and I think the island uh, you know the island continent does that some Mm. some in some sense does that but was there a point for you where you thought I don't need to stay here. Like, I can get out of this place. I can... When when did that happen for you? Like, at what point in your life did you think... I was about 14. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I, went I went to boarding school when I was 15. Mm-hmm. So I was also at a very young... I grew up in a remote part of Australia. Uh-huh. And so I was on School of the Air, um, actually, when wow. I first started schooling. So I was talking to other students who were thousands of miles away. Amazing. So the world for me was always, yeah. um, it's probably why I love podcasts to mm. this day and the talking um, and hearing um, radio mm. because I actually grew up with that. 
but my world was small in one way, but also incredibly large, but also phys- um, physically large because it was geographically large mm-hmm. because it was like big vistas. It was like huge, the Flinders Ranges, like most incredible Beautiful. ancient country, you know, like amazing country. Mm. So I also... Broad horizons. Big horizons. Mm. And I didn't ever see that, um, I didn't see myself being, you know, being, would be sort of perhaps staying there. <laughs> As yeah. I could still have it. And I always, you know, believe like in a sort of uh, sense of um, being in country that you don't have to be sort of, it can, it can be still in you in a way, uh, you know, as we, we learn from, you know, from all um, our, in, in indigenous culture that country is something that is part of you, part of you mm-hmm. can be part of you for even with you know dispossessed people you know it, it's but how do you um i mean off off the conversation we were talking about how you arrived home from rome yesterday and you felt like australia was kind of a bit well the situation you're in was a bit parochial a little bit sort of like you know when you come back into the airport and you hear the you hear the accent I love hearing the accent, actually, because it is sort of so jolting sometimes and you've been in your own head um, not hearing your own accent Mm. Um, and then you hear it and um, I I actually don't mind that. I actually find that. It's more that... um, um, We're not going to lose you, are we? You're not going to go and live somewhere else and... Well... (laughs) I th- I could see that I could probably probably spend some more time um, away, probably, but I'll always be back. You know, mm. like I'm always and have been continually for a, such a long period of time. So, so I did see myself to be in the world, an isolated upbringing, but I did see myself as being in the world. I did feel that strongly, mm. and I had a great aunt who was also an artist. And was a sort of like a, a link, and a link for my family into, into, um, into the world of art. And she was a woman artist mm-hmm. in Paris. Wow. In uh, went with Margaret Preston actually, with uh, her and Margaret Preston. She was a, um, a student of Margaret Preston's, and they went to Paris together. And she stayed there and spent the rest of her life there as a sort of. You know, very, very um, established and successful artist, actually. Yeah. And so, so that's often quite possible. I mean, it makes you feel like it's possible, and that's something you can look to directly as a. I understood that, and my mm. family understood that uh, that uh, that an art that a woman could be an artist, that they could be a, both a professional mm. artist, and that's what you did. That mm-hmm. to be an artist is what you did. And so there were no boundaries. There were no you. boundaries. So I had those psychologically given to me really young. What a gift. It was a gift. That's amazing. It was the not, most incredible gift. Not many people get that. No, my mother now. had... No, that's true. And my <laughs> yeah. mother had actually visited her when she was 16. So mm. my mother had been to her atelier, you know, you know that... So can you imagine? Wow. So I had so many stories and had so many... So I had it in a way framed mm. that uh, a woman could be an artist. And she had various studios around the world at that stage Uh, she died just pretty much as I was born around that similar time Mm. but she had had studios in Switzerland and in Scotland and in Paris and I just thought wow that sounds like a good idea yeah and it is and it is I just wanted to talk to you about the idea of having people to follow so you know obviously your aunt was an early one but in in your last show that I saw in staging the studio the act of sort of inscribing other women's names as part of the work and that direct referencing um, and their actions as well. So often, you you know, you'll have someone's name and then sort of what they did or how you understood part of the gesture of their practice. Is that, um, 
I mean, I find it very beneficial because it's almost like you can take notes directly from, mm. from your work. But how do you choose and what's the process in that type of referencing? It was interesting, actually, that I did see, I saw a guy, man, actually standing there um, photographing and he'd been to my lecture and he was just um, getting all the names, right? It was really, really great. And um, so he was, he, he'd had one lecture and then he was going and creating his, his own next lecture from, and choosing which parts of the sort of um, pedagogical text mm. that I had everywhere um, that, that he wanted to, to um, sort of connect with. I thought that was wonderful. Mm. Um, I have my own, I guess, um, history of artists that I've been really connected to and who've been really meaningful and they have they, they come around with they, they, they follow with me whenever I mentor um, um, students uh, I often say have them there with you mm-hmm. have them watch over you because I sort of really believe in that very early on actually I remember when I was an art student re- you know reading Vasari's The Lives of the Artists and I have and still to this day make connections to artists across centuries amazing um i hold that i hold that language and i hold that those stories Mm. and it was a process i think of building and and gaining confidence for myself around what it was to be and how it was to be an artist and how Mm. a life could be lived like even to the point of knowing that durer when in the early days that he would go around to um uh, when he was travelling through um, Europe, he would take small uh, etchings and he would use those as trading for accommodation or for hotels or you know like whatever yeah. an inn or whatever it was. Mm. And I used to I used to do things like that too. I would have always have some work. I would trade work, pay, mm. you know, pay for good. yeah, mm. exactly. I mean these are these are things that are sort of fund. They're not just things that we've created as a mm. need. These are things that artists have done. Forever, but it's almost like a guidebook. You're, um, I mean, of how other people have done it, and there's so many multitudes of how other people have done it. But that guidebook is important to to remember that that they existed, so that we are allowed to exist in our own way. Absolutely. So by by you know by uh, calling up <laughs> calling up the spirits of these artists, I'm sort of um, defining myself as an artist as well, and giving me language. So mm. of course, women artists are you know important important and 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 fundamental to to me actually and that board shows that i think yeah it does does. and it's really awesome because you can't get it wrong you know (laughs) because it's right in front of you you can't make Mm. assumptions or guess or leave it up to the critics i think it's quite bold in Mm. putting it out there and um saying it but do you ever on that like who you look to and what they did do you ever uh, sometimes i get obsessed with women with tragic women and I don't know whether that's a way of understanding it or are there any people in your kind of catalogue of research that you're interested in that have had tragic lives? Well, so many of them had tragic mm. lives. That's, that's, I usually um, don't deal with their lives as much as I do with their right. art. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting mm. um, way of ma- making me say that, actually, because and mm. making that as a profound statement, because that's the truth. Mm. So, although there are lives, um, and that's why um, I don't often talk about my own life either. Well, I'm going to make you talk about your own <laughs> life because I think we're at that point now that we've said that. But I've been asking everyone, what do you find most confronting about yourself? Mm, that is a difficult question. I don't know what that, what confronting means in terms of 
how, how to define confronting. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's a, the confrontation is something about a personality trait that is... that is Something that's deep within you. Mm. That's the essence of you that... Um, mm. You know, for some, for some people, they've felt like it's shame or that they're ashamed of something or someone said that they find that the core of them is angry. But mm-hmm. then interestingly went on to say that that fuels a lot of what they do. And I just find this fascinating, that core of the psychology of each of us. Well, I've always been interested in psychology mm. and matters of the mind. Mm. Um, and there is, there is something... I don't find it so confront this idea of confront confronting you know, though. That's fine. No. You could be com- not confronted by yourself. No, that but would be I amazing. am fueled by <laughs> I am fueled by um, wanting to be in the world and just I mean that's maybe a mm. confrontation. The very fact that I want to be in the world mm. so much, so strongly. Like present or something. Yeah. Um, mm. this need to be, you know, this need to be in the world. I I'm not sure if that is confronting. No, no. <laughs> it's do a drive. You, is there any certainly... time that you find that difficult though? Like do you is there any time where you think, God, I want to go overseas again? How you know? No, I love it. I love <laughs> it. I love it. I I but I also love making work. I mean, mm. I'm really when I'm in my studio, making art is hard. Mm. And I do um I do um spend a lot of time making making my work. And Do you need to? Like Yes, I do. No, yeah, I have yeah, to. Yeah. That would be the only thing that I would have to say is confront, confrontational is that I have this really strong strong com- compelling need mm. to make art this is also something that's not 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 come up so far and a few people have described it as a tenacity like that you com- like compelling is i guess a similar thing or an obsession yeah. i wouldn't say obsession as as because it's sort of not not obsession i think is something that's often out of your control i mean okay. i am in control of yes. this yeah and um, i can choose choose to but it is compelling Mm, mm. and i do um i am am so much so that i would be you know i'm already making and seeing work into the future Mm. way into the future so i i'm planning that's so cool uh, yeah so it's sort of like i i have these um um the most confronting thing i think maybe is to sort of um clean up the studio (laughs) (laughs) just sort it all out yeah and i don't really want to sort out some things in in terms of the archive or you know um no i'm sort of so much in the moment of making right now and um and and actually working with other artists too Mm. around the world right now too and i'm feeling that very strongly in collaboration um with particular different artists that i'm sort of forming um unions with Mm. um I'm finding that's opening up all sorts of things. So, and that, but the confrontation, no, 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 that's great. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really, you've, you've got a drive that you're super productive as well. Like you don't seem to ever stop, which I find just so inspiring and yeah. amazing. And I've always felt like I can't stop either. But sometimes I feel like it's difficult to, maybe there's points where it's difficult to find an out, not an outcome, but like a place for all this stuff. Like, yes, well, I think that's why things change. Like, so mm. also, you know, I'm not in my studio make, 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 making mm. all the time. There are all these other parts of me that are producing. Uh, 
in sorts of other ways. So it might be um, in research, it might be in uh, tra- traveling and research, it might be in exhibiting, trialing, rehearsing. <laughs> you know, so that, so I've sort of compartmentalized a whole lot of it to be able to um, build in, if you like, ins and outs. And I find that's be- being is working really well. A way me. of having being able to put one thing down, pick up yeah, something else, and yeah. is that to keep you kind of it, well, it, became, it keeps dialogues, yeah, uh-huh. it keeps an uh, opening. But now I'm just about to go to through, you know, and I sort of designate these phases if I can. Mm. So now I and I work really hard in one particular area so that I can sort of buy time to be in another area. Yeah. So now I'll go into a new research phase as well as a. A consolidation phase so. so you have to be very clear with that i i would say it's just the way i ha- it's the way i can handle it i have to so it's not like in my mind it necessarily is okay. at all at all it's always leaking it's always cross fertilizing yeah right. but actually physically and um to get it done pragmatically there are some things that have to be decisions have to be made about how i can and fund it and yeah you know well, um how you know what logistically can but, be managed as well but the work drives you first right because this always. is something else we've talked always. about the work yeah. is always and the ideas around the work have always driven me first and then you've learned how to um talk about that or package that for different for these different sort of areas to then allow the work to happen i mean in terms of financially is that your sort of process you make the work first or the idea comes first and then you have to sell it no, the selling is seemingly really last, actually, yeah. unfortunately, um, as in um, the because the because it's driven from the idea to mm. start with. Mm. The idea will say what the what's what the sort of work is going to be. So at the mo- moment, the work is all around the ba- the ballet russe. Yes. Now that also opened up as a body of work which I was wanting to do for a really long time but didn't quite know how I would do that work. Mm. It was just sort of... I wrote it down, actually, around eight years ago on a piece of paper. And so I often... I have a lot of notebooks and mm-hmm. I have a lot of planning. But I wrote, I wrote down what would happen... It was like a question, mm. which is what I did with the, um, with the Exquisite Pirate as well. Were That's there great. any women pirates? I just wrote it down as a Questions question. Question's great. Mm. So this was also a question. What happened with the Ballet Russe costumes? Did they find in the Ballet Russe costumes a little bit of Picasso with a little bit of Sonia Delaunay because they yes. recycled. Did they recycle and did you find Like they've those? been mixed and matched. Yeah, they mixed them. They didn't. Ah. Oh. But <laughs> I kept it as an idea. Maybe I could do something with that. And so that's exactly what I've done. Oh, wow. So I've digitally now, you know, eight years ago, I probably wouldn't have been in the digital space like mm. I am now. So actually eight years on, it's the right work for the right time. And I'm also in Indonesia, mm. have access to it. Although I did try it out, trial with some other embroidery in Vietnam I didn't have the same sort of relationship or connection so now I do in Indonesia with Mm. artisans so now I have trialed it and now Mm. I've been able to do that so that body of work grew out of um, uh, firstly the idea but of the place and time as to how to make that happen I guess. I love the idea that you that the idea might have that question might have come even years ago but that you have your life in perspective to a point where you can say, oh, now's the right time. Yeah, because it's the work. It's always about holding the idea in a way somewhere. So 
they're, they're, they're there. Mm. They're locked away or not locked away. I, I hold them. I bring them, make them visible, if you like, as a question. Yeah, no, I remember you saying something to me the first time we met where you said never, like, never kill them off. Like, keep all those things alive to a point that you can either pick them up again or just that for you they never die? What I was saying to you, mm. actually, was that um, don't leave things behind as mm. in your own practice. Mm. Don't, don't, and let don't, them go. Don't, no, you, you, they, they, they might have gone that, might, that work. So often um, I think that there's this sort of idea that, oh, you finish that series of work, you mm. go on to another series and you can – and I, of all artists, would – have have I've worked across series completely you know through through my whole career I've really worked very much strongly in series of work but along that I, there are I don't let uh, things just cease in a way they still they still are, are quite alive for me mm. and uh, remain alive so I think that you don't you don't let it go no mm. you don't necessarily mm. say well that's finished with why would you you I brought know, it into in, you, you brought You're it up. responsible for it. Yeah, you brought it out. <laughs> you know, can, can you look at it again and can you look at it differently, you know? And, and I would – there's so much of my work that I would sort of re-engage with um, the ideas mm. and, and engage with it differently now. Mm. It's um, almost like they grow up like a, like a child or something. Yeah, so you look at some things and, and some things are sort of like – um, you know, confounding or, or even amazing to you that you did or other things like, oh, did I do that? You know, you don't even actually recognise it, it some, somewhere, but then you do recognise where it came from, the place of the idea of where it came from. Well, I do anyway. Not necessarily, you know, what was I thinking? Yes, probably what was I thinking? Um, and also, you know, along the way you destroy things. I mean, I destroy quite a lot of work actually. So, or I cut it up, yeah, right. I rearrange it. Um, I destroy. You destroy for all sorts of reasons, don't you? You know, you destroy. Sometimes for, it can be creative in a way. As absolutely, well. mm. you destroy. It's cathartic as mm. well. Like mm. I believe cutting is too. Yeah, and cutting. Um, one of the things that I had down as you know, cutting as a feminist action to talk to you about that. But it, you know, throughout history, obviously, there's lots of feminist artists who have employed cutting. Yes. But do you think of that when you're cutting? Well, it is very cathartic cutting. I mean, when I cut, I do feel it's mm-hmm. great. I, I love to cut. It's very, um, it's quite, uh, it's drawing, of course. Mm-hmm. There is this sort of relationship to drawing, mm-hmm. strong line. It's decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite powerful. I have particular scissors that I like to cut with, a particular scissors I like to cut with for different things. So I'm particularly involved in cutting and in, mm-hmm. as an action, as a methodology. But the psychology of cutting is mm. also profoundly interesting and also its relationship to um, cutting the body mm. and self-harm. And I don't cut myself mm. personally, but I know people who do cut mm. and are cutters and also the issues around cutting um, often with young women around identity and showing the marks of cutting on their body. Um, usually something it's often a profoundly sort of a, a moment in time about dealing with something and apparently when the blood runs it is actually cathartic wow. it's a release mm. so it's around this sort of idea of a, a release and then hmm. yeah it's it's pretty pretty profound I don't do it but I but I have made work mm. around quite specifically around around cutting the pedagogical puppet instructions for cutting and tearing 
was a text written by Maria Tamarkin, one of my collaborators, and she wrote this beautiful poem. And I asked for a poem on self-harm. Mm. And um, and I was unsure as to how I would use it. It was when I was at the University of Connecticut. And I wanted to do something quite... To actually show that, you know, this is part of the content that I do access. Mm. And um, because I do think that this cathartic uh, psychological need to cut, to rearrange, is... Um, has been has been useful mm. and is a political act from as a feminist. Yeah, definitely. Even to cut up work, to cut and take it off the frame. <laughs> you know, when I was in the nineties making paintings was also very profound. I mean I wanted to I wanted to get off of the patriarchal the square, tra- square yeah, yeah, or yeah. that because it was, it seemed to be limiting me at that moment. Mm-hmm. And how was I going to get get and I remember somebody saying to me, a lecturer at the time, saying, yes, but you won't be able to sustain this. And uh, I have sustained Just it. watch me. Yeah, watch me. And I did. Mm. And I did. And I literally have developed that. I developed, but it really came from, you know, a whole lot of conceptual reasons around cutting and, as I was saying before, around issues of identity mm. and cutting something up, rearranging it. But that And that thing as a woman, um, I remember even just talking to my mum when I was a teenager and and she said one of the things you know you remember bits that your mum has said to you and she she said oh you constantly reinvent yourself you just you know as a woman I feel like I've constantly been taking parts of myself and reinvent you know and that rearranging of almost the self is quite a powerful feminine Mm. um, thing that we all seem to know but no one really I mean yes I think it's also it's not just coming from a place of self, it's coming from a place of culture, don't yeah, forget. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what mother, lover, child, daughter, sister, you know. Like um, a weird Frankenstein, witch, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Mad woman, all of those things. You know, they're yeah. all subjects I've touched on with my work. Pirate. Pirates, yeah. women pirates, the most perfect perfect i found a metaphor for a woman artist because yeah. there is this space of piracy where you want In to go between. into and take and plunder um and and re- and 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 then mm. i think share mm. <laughs> because uh, they say piracy was the first democracy it's quite a amazing lot written about that actually those yeah. archetypes yeah i love that in your work that they're well they're not all always necessarily human either are they? i mean the tree is quite a reoccurring mm. thing it is. isn't it and that branching and um, the tree as a profound image from my childhood actually mm. the tree and also uh, quite early on as I grew in, up in such an incredible landscape, that it was the that was the place it was on the Heisen Trail. In fact, the property I grew up on was on the Heisen Hans Heisen wow. Trail, and the Hans Heisen Trail and the Hans Heisen Gum is a very big uh, image, in, especially in South Australia, as a sort of yeah. um, nationalistic sort of um, icon of. So this is like a stringy bark. Those big sort of slanty... Well, that's usually a big ghost gum, oh, actually. Ghost gum. Which also interests me, the fact that it's ghost gum. Mm. Haunted. I and I, I've always had, even if we talk about um, hauntings, mm. I have been, I was haunted as a child by the landscape. Mm. And I always have had a dis a dis-ease with the landscape. You know, obviously as, a, as an adult, the sort of... Um, you know, not you know knowing a colonial history yeah but as a child I still felt it um Mm. quite profoundly 
and the tree centers is centered into that for me somehow um, definitely well I feel like the trees are because they've been here long before any mm. of us and that I mean even in our backyard we have a ghost gum that's yeah. about 150 years old and that that just that idea that they've outlived us and, and witness what and witness yeah yeah like yeah. a silent witness absolutely so the tree yeah. is always and it had this other dimension of uh, you know what art was for me growing up because it was such a beautiful landscape everyone would go there and paint gum tree paintings and I knew from a very young age I didn't want to be that sort of artist Um, but I didn't know how I knew that but I did I mean I wanted to make um, um, I think the first painting I actually made was was based on the witches of Macbeth so you're there so it's quite a literary source it's not like I was but maybe something to do with being in that landscape but when you said just going back to what you said earlier about knowing a long way in advance of things that might come in the future what's one of them that you can imagine yourself doing like in you know in in 30 years or something I'm not going to tell you oh (laughs) (laughs) but do you do you think outside of even what you're working in at the moment do you think right outside of the realms of the way you're working? Like, do you project big, really big things? Um, I, I project, I can't really see, um, no, I can. No, I do. Yeah, I, I can. I, I can. That's awesome. I can. Well, I think we've sort of reached, I could keep going, but it will go way over time, but... um. Yeah, we've reached that point. And on that note, I think just all of us imagining what that really big thing is, is super exciting. And I'd also just like to say thank you. It was a huge privilege to speak with you today. Thank you, Ty. It's always great to speak to you too. Oh, no, that's great. I was so happy to hear Sally say that she doesn't find anything about herself truly confronting. What an inspirational idea that is, that as women we might actually be okay with ourselves. I love the way Sally talks about identity as something that is both fragile and sturdy and essentially rearrangeable and fluid. And how about that notion of calling up the spirits of women artists from the past to create your own list from history of women who you admire? As Sally said, take them around with you to watch over you and your work. And I will never forget that seemingly simple yet profoundly enlightening piece of advice she gave me, to never leave parts of your practice behind. Sally makes me want to arrange and catalogue all my notebooks, pads and even scribbled napkins so I can access and truly use them as an ongoing resource for my work. This conversation was recorded for the series A World of Her Own as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It was recorded by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. If you enjoyed exploring Sally's world with me today, you might like to delve into some other worlds by downloading more episodes directly from the ACCA website. Visit www.acca.melbourne, where you will find the World of Her Own link under Programs or from SoundCloud if you visit soundcloud.com forward slash ACCA underscore Melbourne. I would like to give a big thanks to Beck Fari for audio post-production and Melbourne musician Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album The Ocean of Everything. Thanks for listening to this episode from Season 1. 
The podcast now lives at tysnaith.com, so head over there for more information about the show and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2. And thanks again to Acker for all their support with Season 1.